Good morning. Um, and uh, yeah, let me add my welcome to that of uh, Kathleen's. Uh, my name's Mike, um, and I'm one of the members here. I'm one of the leaders of the Connect uh, Mission or Community. Um, and thank you for that reading, Kathleen. And uh, it's actually helpful that we read a little bit of the context around the passage as well, because I will refer to that. So that's, that's actually that's just really useful. Um, please keep your Bibles at hand. There's going to be some uh, digging into a few of the words uh, and phrases that Paul is using in this letter during uh, this a little talk. Um, so yeah, keep them, keep them at hand so we can refer back to them. Um, you may have noticed, perhaps not, but it's nearly Christmas. And amongst many other things, what that means is it's the perfect time to watch the truly endless list of Christmas movies on TV and across the various streaming services. If you need some recommendations, you should talk to Liz, although this reference doesn't work because she's not here this morning because she's feeling ill. But you should talk to Liz anyway, uh, my wife who has seen most of Netflix's catalogue at least 20 times and is probably watching some right now. Um, but the only genre these days that's nearly as endless as Christmas movies is superhero films. And I'll be honest, that's more my thing. One technique that a lot of the torrent of superhero films of the last decade have used is the idea of an origin story. The idea that you tell us all about where the hero came from, dedicating as much as an entire movie or a few episodes of a TV series to the bit before they become really super. This has worked very well for established characters who we all sort of knew, but being told uh, the origin story gives more weight to the actions they take and the decisions they make. Whilst I could have told you 20 years ago, before I'd even seen a Batman film, what he looked like, what his main symbol is, it's a, it's a bat, seeing Batman Begins grounded all of this in a person. And it made everything that came afterwards far more compelling. It's quite easy at Christmas to imagine that's what we're getting with Jesus an origin story. The Western world at large tends to be aware there's this person called Jesus. He performed some miracles, or people say he did, and it's reasonable to assume there's some knowledge of the nativity in there too. The thing is, there's a lot of people who get a bit confused at this as well. Because when we see Batman's origin story, we don't get this intense focus on the first two years of his life. The circumstance of his birth isn't a huge factor. The Riddler doesn't show up bearing gifts. So why all the focus on Christmas? Well, it turns out Jesus' origin story is a bit more evolved than the nativity play might have us believe. In actual fact, it doesn't start out, spoiler alert, on a cold night in Bethlehem at all, or even nine months prior. The story begins way, way back when the earth was formless. In his letter to the Philippians, Paul gives possibly the best and most succinct origin story of Jesus. As with the origin stories we've been entertained with, Batman, Bond, Tony Stark, Peter Parker, three different ones. Knowing Jesus' origin story gives us a great depth to the person whose biographies make up the start and the largest books of the New Testament. Okay, Mike. I'll go along with you on this slightly stretched superhero reference. But why does all of this even matter? It matters because the Christian faith is faith in a person, the person of Jesus. We see very clearly from how Paul is writing here 
that he sees not only that people should know Jesus because they need his eternal life in the future, but also that knowing him, truly knowing and understanding him, will change their lives now. And this passage it's sometimes even referred to as a hymn because of the style it's written in. Depending on how your Bibles are written, you might see that. Um, it comes just after Paul has spent some time, as we heard a little bit of, encouraging the Philippian church in unity to be humble people. Now, rather than give those instructions and say, and that way you get to go to heaven, or some other such phrase we might expect to hear from someone who's touting a religion, Paul instead launches into a theologically dense six verses, telling the whole of Jesus' origin story from creation through to beyond his resurrection, solely to offer the Philippians encouragement for how they live their lives in the here and now. As we examine this origin story this morning, one that spans but far exceeds the Christmas story we're so aware of at present, the theme we've been following of love coming down at Christmas, We'll see how Jesus goes from God to man, from man to death, and from death to exaltation, and what that means for how we can know and walk with him, with his church in unity, as Paul desires for the Philippians. Well, in the first part of our story here, there are no angels or shepherds, but we see a concept in verses six and seven of Jesus being God. I think this is a good time to unpack some of the language Paul is using. As I alluded to earlier, some of this is quite dense material. And if you need an example of that, one of my favorite online Bible study tools, and yes, I'm the kind of person who has a favorite online Bible study tool, gives a brief breakdown referencing popular preachers or theologians for each verse of whichever book you happen to be looking at. And it was telling to me that I was in for some trouble when I got to these verses and found that it was broken down not by verse, but by word. <laughs> There's a lot here. This section, though, is very clearly Trinitarian. The Trinity is a concept we don't often bring up, and that's a shame but understandable, because it can be a hard concept to describe well. Now, here's a secret that literally any reference I ever make to the Trinity is probably stolen from a book called The Good God, by the author Mike Reeves, uh, which I'd recommend, and I would lend you my copy of, but I've lent it out so much that I've got no idea where it is. Uh, if anyone happens to have it, I'll close my eyes and you can just leave it on my seat, okay? Um, but I hope someone's enjoying it. When I say Trinitarian, though, what I mean is that in this verse we see Jesus is both God and has a distinction from God the Father. He isn't just another being who's equal to God, because it says he is being, in very nature, God. At the same time, he isn't just an aspect of God, because he's able to separate himself, to change, to split from God. And that leads to one of the most controversial statements in this passage, which is where it describes the result of Jesus' view on his being God, that he gives it up, that he makes himself nothing. In some translations, especially some older translations, the phrase makes himself nothing is actually represented as empties himself, which has definitely led to a lot of debate. It comes from the Greek word kenosis. If you struggle to remember that, just think Obi-Wan kenosis. 
and you'll both remember it and have every reasonable theologian mad at you for some time. The controversy, though, of the word kenosis in this passage is how can Jesus empty himself from being God? It's an odd concept, but it does matter. If Jesus is able to fully cast away every aspect of being God, then for all that he was God at some point, he is no longer God. And so really is just a man, like many people claim him to be. That is a place, though, where the origin story has to be considered in light of what we know about the parts that come after. Throughout the New Testament, Jesus refers to himself as the Son of God. He tells of how his Father forgives people and does, says, and knows things that no man could. So the concept of empties has to take on another meaning. And I found a good analogy to explain what's happening here, which brings me right back to the cheesy Christmas movies you thought I was going to talk about more at the start. Now, I am reliably told that there's a movie called The Princess Switch. You can see in your faces, some of you have seen it. And in this film, a royal swaps places with a double and lives the life of an ordinary person for a time. However, it doesn't matter what clothes they wear, how they act, or even who people think they are. Regardless, they remain a royal irrespective of anything outside of themselves. And it's for this reason that the NIV chooses a translation for this word of making himself nothing. He lowers himself to the lowest point, that of a human, and one born into a low position, but nevertheless remains God, even as those around simply see, perceive, and relate to him as a man. He is fully God and fully human. I think it's also important to note at this point, Jesus really did place himself at the bottom of the pile in all of this. He would have been just as fully man if he was a soldier, a priest, a government official, an important academic. He'd have still been man, still brought the divine into the world. He could still have taught, had followers, said all the things, done a lot of the things he did. He might have even had more people listen to him. But he was ultimately humble, rejecting what he could have had, even as he rejected who he was. At this point, it would be a really easy um, and maybe obvious application point for me to say, we should aspire to be this humble. And that would be great if we could be. But I think that's too lofty an aim for us. I can happily say I'm humble until about two seconds into a game of Mario Kart, at which point I'm telling everyone how much better I am than they are. But this would also be too little incentive for Jesus to have come all the way down to our level just to be a nice example. As good as it would be, I don't think trying really hard and aspiring to follow Jesus' example here would work for us. But what this should do is give us comfort to know that he did come to be with us, to experience what we experience fully, and to show a level of care for us that's beyond what we'd expect of any earthly relationship, all give and no take. I've forgotten to put my slides on. <laughs> but whilst we cannot aspire to be so humble, we should desire it. And it is here that the next step of Jesus' origin story becomes important for us. 
Not only does he go from God to man, but then he goes from man to death. Look at verse 8. It says he is obedient to death, even death on a cross. What we know of the cross is that it was a barbaric and cruel way to execute people. What we probably think of less is some of the religious significance of the cross. But this would have been very familiar to the people who this letter was written to and the whole world at the time of Jesus' crucifixion. It was thought and written that death on a cross meant somebody was especially cursed by God. They were cursed by God if they were hung on a cross. And Paul is pointing out an irony here, that God, after doing the unthinkable and becoming man, lets himself be killed in a way that's specifically designed to mark people as being separated from God. In our origin story, this is the turning point. This is the bit where we wonder if there's going to be a sequel at all or if they're pulling a Game of Thrones on us. It's the bit you probably wouldn't write at all if you wanted to make Jesus out to be anything important, let alone to be or be comparable to God. But as Christians, we need this part. Because of what I mentioned earlier, by ourselves, all of Jesus' good examples are just more guilt, more things we know we should do, but we can't. And I didn't need Jesus to tell me to be good. Deep in myself, I know when I'm doing what's good, and I know when I'm doing what's not. And a lot of the time when I'm doing what's not, I'm sitting there trying to tell myself, no, it's okay, it's fine. I mean, other people do this at least, and that's, that's all right, isn't it? And maybe it's okay. Yeah? Paul knows this as well. He writes in Romans 2 that all people have God's law on their hearts. We understand these things. The problem is the law doesn't help us follow it. And it can even make it harder. The weight of the knowledge of how we failed bogs us down, causes us to stumble more and more as our load gets heavier. Jesus can be as good an example as he wants. But if this next part of the story isn't here, if he doesn't do something completely unpredictable, completely different to what anyone might imagine God doing in this situation, if he doesn't cut himself off from God, who just two verses earlier was said to be his nature and his equal, then the whole story is meaningless to us. It's another fable, another good idea. But if he does this, if he dies, if he's cursed, then he changes the rules. He changes his position and he opens a way for ours to be changed as well. In the third part of our origin story, we see Jesus go from death to being exalted. When Paul says exalted here, what exactly does that mean? It's not a common phrase. There's possibly some symbolism in this. Exalted can also mean lifted up. And Jesus was both lifted up onto the cross, but also lifted out of the grave and lifted up in the ascension to heaven. And one of my favorite aspects here is the phrase highest place. The use of the word highest place can also translate to highly exalt, or my favorite translation I found of this, to super exalt, which goes great with the origin story theme. Jesus is super exalted. He's lifted higher 
further and with more splendor than you can possibly imagine. Something evident in the breathless way Paul launches through these final verses with a lot of commas and no pauses for breath. You get the idea this very concept should excite the reader, the listener, us here today, because it's clearly exciting the person writing it. And this is what Paul is centering this entire chapter and actually a lot of the rest of this letter around. The culmination of Jesus' origin story is that he's come through the humble and understanding nature of a man. He's entered the cold, lost separation of death and is now reborn, a new name, given dominion over everything. The phrase Paul uses, Jesus is Lord, is the Lord we see in the Old Testament, the Hebrew word Yahweh, which translates to something like I am. It's God defining himself. And it's a strong indicator that Paul doesn't just consider Jesus now level with God, a man who has lived his best life and achieved enlightenment, has his reward, but he is God. Once again, a God who is distinct in the fact he went through this journey in order to be with us. Love coming down, but also love bringing us back with him. And when I say bringing us with him, I'm referring back to where Paul started this passage in verse 5. He says that in your relationships, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. He's encouraging people in the church, considering their relationships with one another, to have this mindset. It could seem at this point like I've backed myself into a corner. We're back at the start. We've once again got a lofty and unachievable goal. If we just view this as exhorting us to think of Jesus and try really hard. But Paul's wording has significance here yet again. Some older English translations use the phrase, let this mind be in you. And that means this is to speak to our hearts. Let the truth of the knowledge of Jesus' love be in your hearts. That's what allows us to exist and to grow in our relationships with one another. Not about an example that we can't hope to follow, but that the story of the one who brought us, Christians, the church, this church, together in the first place. Paul is asking us to know Jesus so well that he is within us, to consider all of our relationships shaped by this knowledge, being shaped by our relationship with Jesus, being shaped by his love for us. I can have something against my brother or sister in the church of my own accord. They've wronged me. They did something I didn't like. I don't have a way to deal with them right now. But Christ's origin story speaks into this relationship. He became a man, so he understands feelings of betrayal, of disappointment, of exhaustion. He took those feelings with him to the cross, and there they died with him. Then he's exalted and given a new name, a new identity. We are not defined by our failure to make that relationship work with our brother or sister. Instead, we're defined by Christ's new identity. And we're free to love and care for that person like Christ would, 
Because Christ died for us and for them too. In your relationships with one another and how you support, care, pray for and love the members of this church, if this is your church. In these things, Jesus' story defines your story. Jesus' love can define your love. Jesus' story means your job is not to die for someone. It's not to pretend to be okay when you're not. It's not to hide from painful conversations. It's not to be burdened by the guilt of where you've not lived up to rules you or others have imposed. Instead, you're to think on Christ. Have him dwell with you. Read about him, pray about him, talk to him, listen to him. And in that way, he will transform these relationships, even as those you are in relationship with are transformed as well. Every good origin story has a moment of calm. A moment before the hero does what they know must be done, where they get to deliver their motivation, their reason for doing what they do. For Jesus, it was the night before he was killed, when he sat down to a meal with his friends. In so many cultures, ours included, a meal is really a time of deep fellowship. You can sit next to someone you have nothing in common with, even someone you dislike, and yet still share in the same food, the same table, the same company. Jesus sat down with the most unlikely group a group who would definitely not be eating together, spending time together, relating to one another, if it wasn't for him. Just like our church. When he did this, he broke bread and told them it was his body. He drank wine and told them it was his blood. He did this so they'd always have a reason to have this meal together, to remind themselves of their bonds despite their differences. And he gives this to us as well. We eat and drink in communion as a sign that we want Jesus to dwell in us, to be part of his coming as a man, his death and his exaltation. If you believe this, if you're in fellowship with people here, whether or not this is your home church, though we'd hope you have a home church somewhere, this meal we're about to share is for you. For anyone else, it's not just now, but thanks to Jesus, the way is open, and we hope you can join in this one day. Under your chairs, you should have a little communion cup, which has a wafer in the top, which you need a degree to open the top of without opening the rest of it, and some drink. And in the spirit of unity mentioned in this passage, 